You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Good morning. It is really good to be here with you today on this beautiful winter Sunday morning. And I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to share with you. Full disclosure, I'm really praying a lot that the voice lasts uh, for the duration of this service. I lost my voice a week and a half ago, and it still hasn't come back. It kind of comes and goes. It was here-ish last night and this morning, and so I said to Pastor Myron, I'm good to go. And then as the morning's gone on, it's gotten a little more wheezy. So please pray for me that this gets out there. And if not, we just know that God is trying to shut me up. So it makes it very clear and good picture for us. So full disclosure as well, um, I was actually slotted in and scheduled to be able to share with you a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, after the Sunday school program here at the church, the Christmas program. But I ended up being sick that weekend, so Pastor Myron, uh, the good man and the saintly preacher he is, was willing to step in and share God's word with you uh, from the series of the names of Jesus that was planned for the next week. I'm very thankful he was willing to do that. Um, And the funny thing about that is, I kept saying to him when he asked me how the message was coming, so there's a lot here, and I don't know how to squeeze it all into 15 minutes. So now, I get a whole service. Um, So maybe it was just by design, maybe it was me just being schemy. You'll have to find out and decide for yourselves. I've been given the opportunity this morning to share with you of the names of Jesus, and I know that Advent is technically done. We're on the other side of Christmas. We're looking towards the new year. We still have the candles lit, though. Um, But I think it's important for us to, to still stay within what was planned, to look at this name of Jesus, because it's worth taking the time to know. When we do an Advent series, the word Advent just means coming. And so we're preaching a series that celebrates the coming of Jesus as we celebrate at Christmas, but we know that that is just the first advent of Christ and that he will, in fact, come again. And so staying within what we had planned for our advent series seems applicable moving into a new year as we anticipate his coming once again after the celebration of his first. Often when we're at church here together as well, I think, we, we spend a lot of time looking at what God has done for his people, for us, the, the works of Jesus in his life and what he did in his walk on this earth. But it is equally as important for us not just to look at what's been done, but who has done it. To know who God is and who Jesus is. Hence, our Attributes of God series that we just finished going through a bit before Christmas. And hence now, uh, the Names of Jesus series. And with this name today, as I said, being New Year's Eve, as we close the chapter on one year and as we look towards another, this name seems very applicable for us. And that name is light. Or to be more precise, as Jesus declared of himself in John 8, as Pastor Myron just read for us, the light of the world. So if you close your Bible, please open it back up to John 8 there. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. And if you have your Bibles open there, would you please pray with me as we just ask for God's blessing upon this service this morning. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here today. I am thankful to look out into this building to see familiar faces who we worship with week to week, who we walk in fellowship with, 
who we walk with through the highs and lows of life, and also to see guests and family, friends who have come back home to visit, but to recognize that regardless of where we spend every Sunday, we are all members of the same family, family of faith. We're all people who have put our hope and our trust in your son, Jesus. We are people who are gathered here today to learn from your word, to see who he is, and to see what he would require of us. Please guide these words today, Lord. Let it be you who speaks and not me. Um, And just sustain this message and the hearts of the people here as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as, as was said, our Advent series this year, if you're just popping in for a Sunday and haven't been here for a bit, was the names of Jesus. Different names that Jesus is known by, that he is declared as, uh, that very directly tie into the Christmas story. We looked at Jesus, his name outright, which seems like the simple one, but as the angel announced to Mary and, and Joseph, you will call him Jesus because he will be the savior of the world. We looked at him referred to as the word, which was in the beginning, which was with God and was God. We looked at him as the lamb, as was mentioned just recently here as well, because he would be the sacrifice that would purchase uh, a lost creation. And when we hear all those different names and we look at what Jesus associated himself with in those names, different imagery comes to mind, right? When we think of a savior, certain things pop into our head, whether that be you know, a superhero-esque figure come to save the day to swoop in and make everything okay, or whether it be the picture of the cross on the hill. When we think of the word, when we think of just the word, word, there's things that come to our mind, whether it's a book, whether it's text messages for our young people, whether it's a scroll, whether it's whatever it might be, there's images that come to mind. And when we think of lamb, There's two places we probably go, a cute, cuddly little animal or a very delicious meal. I lean to that side. I'm sorry. Lamb chops are delicious. Now, when we hear the word light or the light of the world, and when we think of light, there's certain things that are likely coming to our mind, right? You look up and you see light fixtures hanging from the ceiling, maybe a lamp in your little reening nook in your house, somebody who won't turn their high beams off driving right at you on the highway. Maybe a big, nice bonfire in the yard you like to sit around, or maybe a nightlight in your kid's room, or maybe your room, no judging here. And when we think about that, those images come to mind, but when we think about light, within the context of the Bible, there's certain things that come to our mind as well. When we think about biblical history and light, we, we're going to go, obviously, more often than not, right away to Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. These are the verses and the places that that come to our mind. We're going to think maybe of the burning bush that spoke to Moses, giving off light as the bush was not consumed. We might think of, within the Exodus story as well, the pillar of, of fire that led the Hebrew people through the wilderness to the promised land. Or maybe, just coming out of the Christmas season, we think of a dark night, shepherds watching their flocks, and suddenly the darkest of night became as bright as day as the glory of heaven shone around them and a multitude of angels sang and declared the birth of Jesus. These are stories we know from the Bible. And I bring them up because contextually, these are stories where Jesus was speaking and who he was speaking to that they would have known as well. 
at the very least, the first three ones that we talked about there. Maybe they did or didn't know about the shepherds and the angels. That being said, there's certain imagery that would have come to mind as Jesus declared himself as light of the world here in John chapter 8. Why would they know? How would they know? Well, this is why our youth group will know this. Our college and career people will know this. Context is so very important when we look at the Bible. Who is Jesus talking to? What are the events that are taking place around this? We can't just cherry pick one little thing out of here and like a bag of trail mix, I always just eat like the, you know, the Smarties and leave the pretzel sticks for somebody else. We don't get to do that with the Bible. So what is happening here? How do these people know? Who is Jesus talking to? So if we backtrack to the beginning of John chapter 8, we get a very clear picture of what's happening here before this declarative I am statement. We see a familiar story. A woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus to be stoned, to be killed for her sin. And Jesus, upon looking at her and stooping and writing in the ground, who knows what he wrote, He then looks to her and to the crowd and says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. The event then plays out that the crowd leaves from oldest to youngest until there's no one left there but Jesus with this woman. And he asks her, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none, Lord. And he tells her to leave and sin no more. I do not condemn you either. Leave your life of sin. Now, important details here. When we think about this story and how it ties into Jesus' declaration of I am the light of the world, a couple things we want to make note of. First off, who's Jesus talking to? Who are the people who brought this woman to Jesus? They're the Pharisees. They're the teachers of the law. It says right here in the text, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts and the teachers of the law and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. So it was the the religious leadership of of these people. They're equivalent to our modern day pastors and elders. Could you imagine if those people who just served you communion approached you that way? Scary thought. Another important detail is this. When we look at the text, when we look at our Bibles and we see chapters and section headings in our Bibles, we have to understand and remember that those weren't there in the original text. Okay? Eastern writing and Western writing is very different. We're very linear. We look for different thought, you know, kind of bubbles and we break them off. Whereas Eastern writing is very just like going in circles and circling back on itself and just kind of runs together. So when we look at At your page, there's going to be a gap between verse 11 and verse 12, and there's going to be maybe a little section heading on it. And often when we read that as Western people, we associate space or time having taken place between those events. It's not necessarily the case, right? These things are added for our benefit to help us understand the word. And when I say these things are added, don't panic. I'm not saying the early church fathers were twisting God's word or adding things in and out of it. That's not what's taking place here. They're simply putting in a number and a summary of what's already there to help us understand things. But what needs to be considered here is even though on our page there's that little space between these events, no passage of time is recorded here. Which leads us to believe that this statement... I am the light of the world, immediately follows this event of this woman being brought to Jesus. 
So what we're seeing here, more or less, is this. Jesus is hanging out in the temple courts, as he often did. It's early dawn, hence the finding of a woman who spent the night somewhere she shouldn't have and got caught before she got home. And she's brought before him. The crowd disperses, and then a dialogue continues. Quick question for all of you now before we go any further, though. Thinking about the crowd that dispersed. (coughs) Honesty time. Have you ever been in a debate or an argument with somebody where you're so terribly convinced that you're right that you start to act like... I'm not going to use the word I wrote down. I'm going to look for a safer word. You start to act like a weenie, a jerk, a little bit, right? Have you ever been there? You were so sure that you're right and you were just hammering this other person for their point. And then much to your horror, you realize that you're wrong. That you were incorrect. Your point was not the right one. Generally, what is your response in your sinful nature when that happens? It's honesty time, remember? We would all love to think that we're very gracious people in defeat and that we'll be like, oh yeah, you're totally right. I didn't see that. Sorry for acting the way I did. But honest now, we've all been there before. I've been there. Let's talk about something else. I forgot. I got to go do laundry, change the oil, shave my cat, something to get away from that room, to get away from that conversation because I was so uppity and thinking I had it figured out It's really hard to double back on that, right? Please tell me somebody else has been there, not just me. Yep. Thank you, boys. You guys are my favorites. All right. It's real. It's where we end up so often. Now, flip yourself to the other side of that conversation. Honesty time still, remember. When you have somebody being a weenie to you and dropping the hammer on you, and you are sure you're right, but so are they, and all of a sudden the truth comes out, what do we do? You don't let them change the subject, right? You don't let them walk away. Like, no, 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 no. We're not changing the subject. Let's talk about how right this is and how wrong you were, right? We can be a little petty that way. But Jesus is not petty. I want to make that very abundantly clear. But this is more or less what's happening in this situation. Later, when he's speaking in the temple courts, after this event with the woman, whether he sought out the people who walked away or he just waited for them to come back, because it's the temple, that's where the Pharisees and the priests hang out, Jesus is talking to the same people, and he drops this on them. He who is without sin cast the first stone. You're all going to walk away? Okay. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, a lot of commentators and pastors that I looked at and read this last week believe that with these events taking place at dawn and with the lack of time between those two passages, right, that Jesus chose this declarative statement for this time in this place so that it would coincide with the rising of the sun over the temple courts. As things were being illuminated around them, Jesus would declare, that's me. I am the light. I am what illuminates the darkness. I am the source of life as the sun is for us, right? 
whether I think that's a pretty cool thought, but whether that's true or not, it doesn't really say. It sounds nice, but what we do know for sure is that in this declarative statement, whether the sun was rising up behind him or not, we know how the Pharisees and the teachers responded to this statement. Liar. Not true. Invalid. Get out. Now, I don't know about any of you if you've done public speaking before, but for me, if I was mid-sermon and somebody jumped up in here now and yelled liar at me, it's hard to come back from. Right? Like, have a good week all. I'll see you next week. I gotta go lick my wounds and recover from that. I would, I would be in my head if I'm being honest with you. I would be thinking about what, what in the world did I do or say to garner such a response? What was in there? I'm not a heretic, am I? But Jesus didn't have to question. He knew full well why this pushback was coming to this statement. As I said earlier, the moments in the Bible we think of when we think of light are moments these people would have known as teachers of the law. They would have the law and the prophets memorized for the sake of teaching. And so what would have been known to these men is known to us today. And when we think of light in the Bible, these men would have think of the same thing. They would look back to Genesis. They would look back to the Exodus. They would look to exactly what Pastor Myron read for us this morning out of Isaiah. And likely, they're going to start exactly where we just started, at the start of all those things, at the beginning of it all. Matt Chandler summarizes the likely response of these men very well in looking at Genesis chapter 1. Why would somebody stand up and shout liar in the midst of this statement? Here's what Chandler has to say about it. When we look at the creation account in Genesis 1, the Bible tells us that the universe looked like this. It was formless, it was dark, and it was void, empty. And then in Genesis 1 verse 3, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and God says, let there be light. And from that sentence onward throughout the entirety of Scripture, structure began to replace formlessness. Darkness was put on its heels and what was void began to be filled with life. This process, this function, what is formless being formed, light advancing on darkness and life filling the void is the way that God begins to interact with his creation, especially in his interactions with man and woman moving forward. So much so that even the prophet Isaiah would write of it in regards to the coming Messiah and the prophet's and priests would know. What does Isaiah say about it? When, when we look at this account here and what God's plan is and how God moved forward from that moment, well, if we want to see what they're seeing, we can look at Isaiah 9. If you want to jump there, you can. If not, I'm going to read it for you right now. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned on. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, 
the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. He says again in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. (coughs) And the Lord has laid on us the iniquity of him all. The iniquity of us all, sorry. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to be slaughtered, like we learned about last week. And like a sheep before its shears is silent. And after he had suffered, it says... In verse 11 of Isaiah 53, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Pastor Myron read this morning, salvation is of Jesus for his glory through him alone. Right? In Isaiah 43. These are prophecies, writings, of the coming Savior, declarations of salvation that would be a purchase through him and his blood and kept through him alone and not our personal pursuit of holiness. And so for people here now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law that are around Jesus who have built their whole lives on religious do-goodery, holier-than-thou living, right? This is not very good news. I am the light of the world. I have come to bring shape to what was formless. I have come for light to expose what is wrong, and I have come to give life to those who are dead. Me, not you. And they feel it slipping out of their fingers. And so instead of a response of, oh my word, it's you, we've been waiting for you, there's a how dare you say you are him, you liar, response from these men. Right? If we read through the Gospels, we see a common thing in the life and work of Jesus. Right? The Pharisees often try to trap Jesus in the things he has said and done. Hence the bringing of a woman before him. You're going to keep the law? You're going to do what's right? He doubled it back on them and showed them the error and the fault in their ways. And this is why they're so much more irked now. They've already been proven wrong once, right? And Jesus hasn't let it go. And so... It irks them when they see this righteousness beyond them, in front of them, and now, though, they think they've got him. Right? John 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. What is the Pharisees' challenge to him? Why are they upset? Verse 13, it says, the Pharisees challenged him and said, here you are, appearing as your own witness, and so your testimony cannot be true, cannot be valid. Now, why would they say that? They think they got him. Just a few chapters ago, not very far back, in John chapter 5, Jesus makes another statement, a declarative statement, when he says, if I testify about myself, John 5, verse 31, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Hanging in there so far, this is good. 
If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And so Jesus says, don't testify about yourself. And then he's seemingly caught now doing just that. And so the Pharisees, gotcha. Get out of here. I can't believe you, we thought you had us this morning. You're so double-minded. You're such a hypocrite. But Jesus responds to them here in that declaration of liar, of invalid, and says, even if I testify on my own behalf, right, starting in verse 14, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decision is true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the Father who sent me. Which really is more or less a response of, you guys really don't listen, do you? Because in that exact instant that he's being called out here now, very much a parallel to chapter 5. In chapter 5, when he's being called out, he says, what he's being called out for in chapter 5, sorry, when he says, I cannot testify about myself, he continues in saying, you have sent John and he has testified to the truth. I didn't testify about myself. John did. And that's often where we stop when we look at that passage. But the important part that ties these two together continues after that. John has testified about me. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned over, that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. But I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify to the fact that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me, seen in what I am doing. You have never heard this voice, nor seen this form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Do we see the connection there? Jesus says, I'm not testifying about myself. God is in what he's given me to do. How could I be this person that you all think if these works did not accompany it? And the greatest work of these is the important one that we really want to focus on today. Yes, Jesus healed the sick. Yes, he raised people from the dead. Yes, he multiplied bread and fish. But what I want us to take home from this message today is this. Just one point for me. I'm going to belabor it a little bit, but it's just one. In chapter 5, when Jesus says, I won't testify about myself, someone else will. We all assume he's talking about John, right? But he says outright, it will not be John that testifies. It will be the works the Father has given that will bear witness. The Father himself bears witness in those works that have been set before me that I have faithfully pursued and completed. And so in chapter 8, after saving someone from due punishment that they deserved for their sin, we see this taking place. The greatest work Jesus was called to do. Was he called to feed people? Fish and bread? 
Was he called to simply heal the sick? When we look at the names of Jesus and the ones that have been presented in previous weeks, what is his purpose? You will name him Jesus because he will be the savior of nations. You will know him as the word because he was from the beginning with God and knew the redemptive plan from the moment it started in Genesis. He is the lamb that will purchase you out of sin and into life, true life, the light of life. He, from the beginning, was part of that work that started in Genesis 1, bringing structure and stability to a formless, failing system of penance, light invading and revealing what is and what isn't, leading a woman to righteousness, as we just read here in chapter 8, and new life being offered where before there was only death. That is the work that Jesus is referring to that bears witness about who sent him because he who sent him has a redemptive plan for his creation. So Jesus says, this is what I was sent to do. This is the Father's plan. These are the works that testify about me, that bear witness for me, and you know it too, but you don't know the Father. You are blind, unable to see or no light, so I'm going to just tell you that it's here. Can a blind person see a light in a room when it's turned on? These are blind men. And so Jesus says, you are blind, you do not know the Father, though you read his word, and so I will tell you what is here. I said that this is the one thing, the point that I want us to focus on maybe a bit confused right now because I haven't really brought it home yet, but how do we apply this? What do we do with it? I'm going to level with you. When I said at the beginning, what do we think of when we think of light in regards to the Bible and we go to Genesis and we go to Exodus and we go to, <coughs> we go to the, the declaration to the, the shepherds, all those different places. There's one other one that always pops into my mind first, but I, I, I didn't tell you. I hit it so that I could bring it home right now. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill for all to see, a lamp on a stand not to be hidden, but to shine for all to see in the room. You are the light of the world. But whoa, I just spent a lot of time talking about how serious that statement is and why the Pharisees freaked out when they heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Problematic, right? How can we be the light if the light testifies to he who was in the beginning with God, who brought substance to nothing, who brought life to emptiness, who brought that light forward to remove the darkness? How can we be that in our sinfulness? When we've read today about the light, what is it declared to have been? In John 8, verse 12, in Isaiah for chapter 53, the light of what? Life. The light of life. What were we before we knew Jesus? Dead. 
in our sins and transgressions, decaying, nothing beings. And what are we after encountering him, being saved by him? Alive, with new life, his life in us. The light of the world. I'm going to read something else for you here real quick. In, uh, in John chapter 9, Jesus says this, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. He also says, let me just grab it. I lost it. While I am in the world, I will be the light of the world, but I will not always be in the world. John 9, verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So where his physical dwelling may have departed in the ascension, his presence remains. How? The temple of the Spirit of God, the church of Jesus Christ, his people. This is the light of the world now that we are we know that there is no light in us that is able to shine, but what we do know is this. I'm going to quote Spurgeon too, because I like Spurgeon. Myron beat me to it today, but why not double up? Charles Spurgeon once said, The Bible is not the light of the world. It is the light of the church. But the world does not read or know the Bible. The world reads Christians. And so you are the light of the world. In Matthew 5... When Jesus declares, you are the light of the world, what does he declare to his people? He says, you are the light of the world. Let your works shine before men for the glory of God. What works? This is where so many people in the church and so many Christians struggle and we fumble through this. Is Christianity just a list of do's and don'ts and that religious do-goodery that the Pharisees pursued? I got to holy my way into heaven. I have to be good. I got to not watch this movie or listen to this music or do this thing. I've got to go to Bible study or attend church. None of that saves you. So why do we pursue these things? Why do we actively pursue holiness and righteousness? Jesus in his final prayer in John 17 wraps it up for us pretty well. He says, Father... You have glorified me for the work that would be done here. Let's pass it on to them. I will no longer be in the world here. In John 17, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Jump down to verse 25 in John 17. Righteous Father, the world does not know you. I know you, and they know you, that you have sent me. And I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known through them, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself in them. The 
the light that we are called to be is not of our own. It's not of your own good deeds. It's not of doing the extra bit or going that extra mile. What is the work that Jesus was sent to do? Exactly like he did for that woman. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, a purchase out of that formless chaos. Light revealing the error of those ways and the sin of the world and new life for those who would receive it. He's given us that we know him. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word became flesh and now it's with us. That thing from the beginning, that glory, glory given to his creation, a glory that when revealed to the shepherds on that cold night, lit up the entire sky as though it were day. That is our call and that is our purpose. That is the light that was Jesus, that is Jesus, and a light that now lives in the church. Why do we come here? Why do we do what we do? What is the purpose of following Jesus, of being a part of this thing? The Westminster Catechism worded it really well. They, they very much just kind of simplified the Apostles' Creed, which says, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of the church? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our purpose in being, our purpose in understanding who Jesus is as the light of the world is for us to know that light, right? Brought structure, revealed sin, gave life. That light, that lamb bled for you and me that we might know his glory, receive it, and show it to others. Good works, let your light shine in the good works, it says in Matthew 5, not that those works will save you, but that those works might save someone else. As Spurgeon said, the world does not know the word, but it knows you. It sees you. And so this isn't a sermon of just do good stuff. This is a sermon of recognize what Christ has done for us. Recognize the purchase, the glory, the holiness of God incarnate, killed for you and me. And recognize that we are called to carry it with us out from here every day to shine in such a bright way that it would light up that which is dark around us. This is really easily done, guys. It it sounds intimidating. This is what's going to be my big, like, closing for the Sunday School program one. It's done as simply as children on the stage declaring the story of Jesus coming. It's done as simply as testimonies shared of the goodness and grace of God on a Christmas Eve service, if you were here. It's done as simply as not hiding in a, a quiet, personal, secret faith. Who has purchased you? What are you? And will you tell the world? Again, Jesus says, they know me, and I will continue to make you known, God, through them, in order that the love you have for me may be seen by the world.
when I think of light, I can really easily think of the blinding headlights of the guy who just won't turn them off, the brights as he's coming at you. But I can also think of the headlights that show me where I need to go and how terrifying it must be to drive in the dark with no headlights on, not knowing what's in front of you. The nightlight that keeps me from stubbing my toe or stepping on Lego as I go to the bathroom at night. the guidance, direction, the care, but also the revealing of the redemptive plan of the perfection of our God, of the purpose of his church. And I am so very thankful to be a part of this church, to get to serve here, to see that enacted and lived out in so many ways. But should we ever be satisfied in where we are? Should we not strive for more to glorify him with the glory that is due his name? And so why is this a good one for New Year's Eve? Well, people are all about resolutions on New Year's. Let's resolve to be a church that's, that's, that testimony of this place shines in this community, in this world, that God would be made known beyond these walls. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this morning to be here to worship with these people these people who, who I love, Lord, and who I'm so thankful to have been called to in this place to get to serve, to love, to walk through um, in great seasons and in, in seasons of joy in life and also in hurt. Lord, we think of, of Francis this morning and the Dick family and the loss of Herman. Heartache that that brings for us. But Lord, again, what a blessing to belong to a place like this where encouragement joy and love can be given in that season and what an encouragement to belong to a place like this where we can walk out of these walls into this week and into this year to come and know that we're not walking out alone we are not a lone voice in the midst of this dark world a lone little candle we are Lord a body a family an army of faith of light that is marching out from this place. Marching out, Lord, not to earn anything for ourselves, not to look better than others in the ways that the Pharisees did, but marching out from here to make known the light of the world as it has been made known to us. We thank you for that light, for that salvation, for the precious blood of the Lamb. Your purchase for our sins, Lord, that we could never pay. Your love for us that is so clearly displayed and has been repeated so well and so often this morning. God, bless us as we go into this year. Bless us with courage, with strength, with growth, with joy as we celebrate what you've done for us and what you offer to so many. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We lift up all these things in your powerful name. Amen.